This is The Guru. I'm your host, Rihanna Dillon, and today we're at BAFTA's Guru Live for a very special treat. We're going to hear true stories by people working in film, TV and games. We have actors, directors, designers, all confessing the worst moments in their career to make us all feel a lot better about our lot. So the one thing I would say that I've done and regretted is not backing up your footage because that's definitely something that you can't fix. <laughs> Sending stuff off before it's actually ready and you're like, yeah, thanks for that. I knew it. Why, why did I send it off? I took my film to a location in my village, arrogantly think I didn't need to book it and 20 minutes into the shoot we got kicked off by the farmer and ruined half a day of shooting. I was taking a team out in one of the company cars and we drove for about an hour in the car. I filled up the car, drove for another hour to get to the shopping centre that we needed to. Just about to start driving back and the car wouldn't start. Suddenly dawned on me that I had assumed this car was petrol. I had to wait a couple of hours for a service guy to come out. He managed to drain it all but basically said, I think you've written off a you know, 15 grand car. And I was like, oh, okay, fuck. Our audience have shared their mistakes and now it's time to hear from some top creative talent. Get ready for stories from Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Diane Morgan, plus live on stage we'll hear true stories from director Jamie J. Johnson, games programmer Costa Serifis and satirist Haven Prowse. Right, I need to get on stage and start the show. Here we go. Hi everybody, uh, welcome to my worst, the closing session of Guru Live. And we have some very brave storytellers here tonight to tell you about some of their worst moments. Uh, we might even have room for a Q&A at the end with our speakers as well. Now, because I, I have done live storytelling before and it is a terrifying thing to do, and I thought I'd amp it up even more with a little bell. So after five minutes, if our speakers are still talking, I'm going to give a gentle. And if they're still talking after six minutes, and then they're off, OK? But I want you to be very, very encouraging because it is scary up here. Um, so please welcome our first storyteller. She is a writer and performer who co-starred and wrote cult sitcom Space, which I will forever be grateful to her. Uh, her other writing credits include Up the Women. And as an actor, she won a BAFTA for her recurring role as Siobhan Sharp from Perfect Curve in W1A. So please put your hands together. Jessica Hines, welcome to the stage. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, like any um, writer, performer, whatever, my ego won't let me tell you my worst without describing how my worst became my best. Um, <laughs> so, basically, uh, this was my worst day at work. I was into week three of um, a pilot series of my sitcom, Up the Women. And I had wanted to, very much, I wanted to capture that feeling of, of a studio sitcom um, because I felt that there was something kind of timeless about it, precious about it, some of my favourite, most classic sitcoms, that it was a studio filmed in that way. And um, I, obviously, I kind of launched myself into it, insisting that it was a studio sitcom without really understanding <laughs> Uh, the limitations, the problems, and the challenges that I was going to face, uh, which is probably the best way to approach um, anything, just absolute ignorance. It's always better. <laughs> Parenting, particularly. Um, 
so so um, I was I had managed to kind of get two episodes up and filmed. And how you make a studio sitcom is you deliver the um, episode to the cast on uh, Wednesday, Tuesday, which is when you have a read through, and then you film on Sunday. And you film all of the episodes on Sunday. And if you are lucky enough, and the BBC will pay for a tiny little extra scene in the studio, you can also film a bit on Saturday, but everything happens on Sunday. The script has to be locked, the actors have to know what they're doing, the cameras are all kind of set. You've got a live studio audience and you've just got to make it. Whatever you've got then, that's, there's just no turning back. So the first and the second episodes, it was, it was my pilot series, I, they, were, they were ready. The third episode, not so much. So by my worst day was basically by the end of Tuesday, when I was supposed to deliver for the read-through on Wednesday, at about 12 o'clock at night, one of the issues was the fact I realised that I just, this was not going to going well. And so I rung the producer and I said, look, this is really not going well. I just don't even know where or how to end this episode. She said, just, just keep working, you know, just maybe uh, kind of, you know, maybe get an hour's rest and then get up and keep going. I was like, okay, okay. The problem was is that in the episode, as it was, I had an electronic masturbation chair, which was actually existed in that time. We did a lot of research, and it was called a hysterics chair. And women were... Actually, this is completely true. They, were, um, they would be sat on the chair in order to relieve hysteria, stress, anxiety, and it was basically like a huge chair dildo. And I thought, that's hilarious. You know, that should be in a sitcom. So the design team had made one. It was in the episode. I had written it in the episode. Also in that episode, we had already cast Emmeline Pankhurst. So, <laughs> so in the writer's room with my helpers, my writers at the time, who were adamant, they were both saying to me, look, you've got a masturbating chair. You've got Emmeline Pankhurst. She's got to sit on the chair. And I was like, I just, that doesn't feel right to me <laughs> as a feminist, whatever. I don't know. That just doesn't feel right. Um, so I had, was writing, rewriting, rewriting. And I realised that, you know, I, I just didn't know what to do. A, apart from to put her on the chair, which just was completely wrong and not funny, um, or just start the whole episode again, bearing in mind that I was supposed to have a read-through with the cast on Wednesday morning. So I called my producer again at four, four o'clock in the morning. Emma, I don't know what to do. She said, get some rest, get up again at six and keep writing. I was like, okay, fine. I was just writing into a hole. And then by 10 o'clock, I called her and I said, Emma, I'm just absolutely fucked. I don't, I have, this is just not working. And so she said, okay. So they called off the read-through. So Wednesday read-through was off. The actors were thrilled. They had no idea what was going on. And I had a day off. And then, so this is when it turned into my best. Um, so then we went and met up with um, Barunka O'Shaughnessy, who was my main woman, my absolute brilliant anchor, fantastic, you know, person who was just, just, she was amazing. She got me through the whole series. She was so brilliant. And Henry Normal, who was executive producer, and I had some notes somewhere that I had to find. I had a session with Andrew Allard, who is a bit of a sitcom king, and he's kind of basically come up with a method of creating a, a, a kind of fail-safe formula for an episode. And I was like, that's what I need. I need a guide. I need somehow, if we're going to write this episode in a day, we need to, I need to have something to hang things on. And so the first thing that happened, I got the, I got the thing out. I was like, right, we're going to follow this. We're going to follow this structure. So whatever happens, everything has to, had to go including the masturbation chair, 
which was a great relief then at that point, just kind of getting rid of it. And we basically, that day, we, we, uh, it took us until one o'clock, and we replotted and structured the whole episode, episode three. And then at one o'clock, me and Barunk started writing <clears throat> at either ends of the episode. And then at about half 12, kind of one in the morning, we finished it. And then we had the read-through on Wednesday. And many people say that that was the best episode. <laughs> the end. <laughs> Thank you so much to Jessica. Now, next up, we have a special guest on VT sharing their personal worst. Let's have a look. I um, may not have been the worst. It's definitely one of the most embarrassing things that happened in an audition was I'm a huge Julia Davis fan. And she asked me to come in to audition for um, one of her shows. And I turned up and it was an improvised audition. <laughs> And uh, I was so excited. Before I was going in, I was saying, you know, just be cool around Julia Davis, because it's very rare that you get to actually meet the star in an audition, let alone, you know, improvise with them. And uh, I walked in, and everything in me was saying, uh, don't hug Julia Davis. <laughs> you walk in, and I saw her, and she was very polite. She said, hello, thanks so much for coming in. And I was like, oh, hi. And I just found myself walking towards her. And I was thinking, you know, she was sort of going, holding out the hand. And I was like, Julia, I went in and I held her so tightly for like a beat too long. And she was like, oh, hi, what, what's your name? I was like, Phoebe. And she was like, oh, that's really nice. She was so lovely to me. Did the improvisation. She said, uh, that's, that's really great. Thanks so much for, uh, for uh, coming in. And, uh, and I was like, okay, thanks. And I thought, in my head I was going, Phoebe, just leave. Just leave the room. You don't need to do that again. And then, and yet my legs were walking towards her. I was like, Julia, at the end. She was like hiding behind a table. And I managed to sort of clamber over a table and embrace her yet again towards the end of the audition. And then as I was leaving, I just had these horrible thoughts going through my head saying, she's the only person I hugged in the room the second time. And that's not cool. I can't be just some kind of star hugger, you know? Like, I have to be a professional. <laughs> so as I was halfway out the door, there was a boom guy there with his back to me because it was a filmed improvisation. He was just sort of fixing his boom. And I just sort of double backed and just sort of hugged him from behind <laughs> like this. And just like, thank you. He was like, uh, it's all right, thanks. And then I kind of sloped out the door and um, I didn't get the part. <laughs> and I, I'm telling myself it's because I overhugged and, uh, and now uh, I sort of visualise myself not hugging the people I love too much. But then brilliantly, when I bumped into Julia a few weeks ago, I told my best friend this whole story. And when I saw Julia coming towards me, she was being so lovely. She was like, hi, really lovely, Jack. And I was like, don't hug her, don't hug her, don't hug her. She's so elegant, don't hug her. And I stood there and I managed not to, but my friend who I told the story, she suddenly went, Julia, in her own panic about the story. Maybe it's just, maybe it's just Julia Davis. Maybe she just, She's just got that thing about her, doesn't you? Just, you just want to embrace her, hoping that some of her will rub off on you. The brilliantly awkward Phoebe Waller-Bridge there. Uh, now, our second storyteller is a journalist, comedian and performer who co-created BBC Three's BAFTA-winning The Revolution Will Be Televised, based on viral online hit sketches, Famous for that particular one with George Osborne and a GCSE maths book. Probably most of you will have seen that one. Uh, also, my new favourite, The Real Housewives 
of ISIS on uh, 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 Revolting, your most recent series, isn't it? This is Hayden Prowse. Please welcome him. I'm not going to tell uh, such a specific story as the last two. It's just more of a sort of period of failure. Uh, it's <laughs> spanned about four or five years. I think it started out because I had this um, sort of idea that I could um, be a, a, a rapper. <laughs> a sort of, uh, which my dad, I think, told me at the time there wasn't much of a market for rappers. Uh, I don't think it's much better now, but I was sort of adamant that I was, you know, I had a niche. I was a political rapper, Dad. I'm going to rap out political things. No one does that. It's definitely going to be fine. I'm going to be huge. Give me three years. During that period, I was kind of, um, sort of delivering musical equipment, mostly sort of grand pianos. Um, wasn't the best job in the world. And I think I kind of realised that I had to kind of get my act together and did like a, journal a journalism conversion course, which was great. And that's kind of end up what I ended up doing ultimately. But after the course, it kind of sort of turned into a... Um, a role working for a sort of sailing newspaper, <laughs> which is something I gave zero shits about whatsoever. <laughs> and I had to sort of just like, you know, sort of bang out copy every Friday and Saturday till, you know, God knows what hour about something I just didn't care about at all. It was also in Cambridge, which meant that I had to get the, um, the train to Cambridge, uh, you know, pretty much every day and back to London. And I kind of did this thing at the time where I was kind of like, thinking to myself, what am I doing writing about sailing boats? And I just don't care about sailing boats. So every evening on the way home and also in the morning on the train, I would sort of sit and try to write a novel because that was the thing that I felt was going to ultimately save me from this job that I hated. So I'd sit and write the novel. I'm going to be a novelist. And I was never, obviously, a novelist. <laughs> but I think what later on, once I left that job and then kind of started doing the journalism I actually really liked, which ultimately turned into comedy and something that I really enjoyed doing, was that... This weird sort of conception that you have when you're younger that you have to know what it is you want to be or, you know, this is what I want to be. And you get asked that, don't you, in like careers fairs and stuff when you're like 18. What is it you want to be with this huge expanse of life that's this 60 years before you? What do you want to do for all that period of time? Obviously, you have no idea, so you just pick something. And I think that the thing that I learned subsequently was it's not really about one thing. It's kind of a general direction and I think the writing, even though that novel never went anywhere, I know I, did, I sent it to my friend who was a literary agent and then had a very embarrassing meeting with her where she basically told me it was one of the worst things she'd ever read in her entire life. But it wasn't wasted time because it was like, I now write stuff like scripts or whatever and it was all, that was all part of your kind of journey to that particular point where you work out what it is you are quite good at writing or whatever. Um, and I see that also with, you know, friends that work in production or friends at various stages in their career that they kind of, they sort of drift towards one thing and they become very good at that, but it might be something else that's a sort of slight sort of, um, you know, twinge on that that they're better at. And I, do, I don't think you, anyone should panic or sort of think they have to decide at any particular point what it is. You might just stumble upon the thing that you're really good at. I feel like even when... I thought I kind of knew what I was doing, and I was kind of a journalist, and I was a very serious journalist, and I was uncovering stuff. And then, and then I got that we did this Revolution Will Be Televised thing on BBC Three, and then it was, you know, one of the first sketches we did. I was, I had to get dressed up in PVC and, and go down to the um, to MI5, and it was obviously a comment on their torture, and be like, oh, I want to come into the best torture club in London. Uh. <laughs> And my friend Jolien, who I do the show with, he just loves that shit. And I was like, Joel, I can't do this, man. I'm a journalist. 
I am never going to be on Newsnight if you make me get in PVC. Like, Shut up. And I had to get in PVC. And actually, that was a, a sort of subsequent testing yourself. And, and I think doing the things that you feel most nervous about is a really important thing. Because once I got over that hurdle, I'm just now in PVC every weekend. And it's, it's fantastic. And I think that's my lesson. <laughs> Thanks to Hayden. Now we have another guest speaker live from AVT uh, telling us about their worst. I was in like my second year of uni and I was determined to finish uni. So the agent that saw me doing a show in the, su in the summertime couldn't sign me yet. I'm even now. And so she called me up for an audition for Star Wars, the one that, um, John, that John was in. And I went into the room. And I saw these like famous actors, I won't say names, but I saw these famous actors in the room and stuff. And next to me, the wall, I could hear like just actors like killing it. There was an American accent just killing it, saying, we gotta go now, John, all right? We gotta do it now. And I was just sitting there thinking, I don't know my lines. So I was waiting, I was really nervous. And I went into the room and I just, just had a nightmare. I had literally the worst audition, probably one of the worst, top three in my life. When I went in, the cast director said to the guy who left, we give you a call, amazing job, we're gonna call you next week. And I was like, oh. And I went inside and I did my audition and it was just terrible. I was messing up my lines, sound, my American accent went like Indian. What I learned from that is like, just own it. You know, literally like just, just go into the room and just own it. Just go inside, do what you can do and leave. There's no if, no buts. No, I, don't, I don't think about Personally, I don't think about awards much or like America. One of the actors who I look up to the most is Daniel Kaluuya, who's cool, we're cool, we talk now and again, but Daniel has the mentality of like, it is what it is, you know? America called him, he didn't call, he didn't run to America, they called him because he's just a beast. So I've learned, even from that audition, to be like, you know what, Kay, believe in the gift you've been given. If you go to an audition, don't think this audition is gonna change your life. I don't believe in big breaks. I believe in like small opportunities. I'd rather, get small roles, short films, indie films, and learn about my craft than to get like a massive film and I've got so much pressure to deliver. Um, so that's what I've learned. I think a massive challenge that I faced with 13 was, with it being such an emotional piece, was keeping up energy for the directors. Um, so we'd have a lot of scenes where they might shoot on me first and then there's three other people and, and, and the scenes are quite intense and, and upsetting and I think I got to a stage mid-shoot where I realised that my energy was kind of dipping and I wasn't, you know, it was the first time I'd ever felt that I wasn't giving everything um, for other people and that really upset me because I, I'm, I like to think that I'm not one of those actors, I think. That was a big wake-up call just in a sense of going on to the next job and um, just realising that you, you have to keep your morale up even if you are knackered. <laughs> yeah, you're going to keep going. I'm very fortunate to have worked with actors who are so generous and, and are there with you 100% when you film and scene. So they're a huge inspiration to me and, and that's what I'd want people to think of when, you know, when they work with me. Fingers crossed they do. <laughs> That was Jodie Kuma and Kowadi Iwumi with some very good life lessons there. Now, our third storyteller for all you game heads out there is a games developer, formerly of Lionhead Studios, who then left to set up his own. So in 2016, he founded the innovative studio, Rogue Sun. You can see that he's um, 
It's got the branding on his T-shirt right there as well, which I like. It's very on message. So please welcome Kostas Zafiris. So um, I'm Kostas. Hi. I got my master's in games programming in um, 2006 from the University of Hull. And then, uh, like Rihanna was just saying, I uh, got my first job in the games industry at Lionhead Studios, uh, which was kind of insane because it was my dream job. I actually wanted to work for Lionhead um, since I first played their games back when they were called Bullfrog. Anyone heard of these games? Anyone old enough in the audience? Representing. Um, so uh, it was amazing. Uh, I, I loved every day of going there. Uh, it was, you know, it kind of, it was my dream job, but it was, you know, it was better than I ever dreamed. Um, some amazingly uh, kind of talented people there. Um, I really learned how to make games there. Obviously, that's where I kind of honed my skills. Uh, and I just generally kind of had a great time. Now, the one thing with uh, landing your, your, your dream job as your first job is that you kind of, you know, it, Inevitably, you get to a point with any job, I think, where you kind of want to make a change. And for me, when I got to that point about five years in, I was like, what, what am I going to do? I've kind of you know, done the thing I wanted to do. Um, and the answer to that question came uh, a bit later in uh, 2010, when uh, Microsoft, who uh, owned Linehead at the time, released this little thing. Um, for those who don't know, this is a Kinect that kind of tracks your movements. Um, so that sparked an idea in me. I was really into martial arts, still am, I guess. Uh, so I thought, hey, you know, it'd be cool if I make a, wouldn't it be cool if someone, I guess, makes a game where you can, you know, perform martial arts in front of your screen and you fight people on the screen, but you actually do real martial arts and the game would teach you, you know, how to do martial arts. So then I left uh, Linehead to do the only thing that kind of could top that experience, which was to start my own company uh, called Kinesthetic Games and Kung Fu Superstar was going to be our first project. Uh, so I started a small um, team with uh, some of my buddies from, um, from Lighthead and uni, uh, and we worked really hard day and night, and we uh, did some amazing things. I'm really, still really proud of that period. And we got to a point where we were ready to pitch our game to publishers. Uh, that was a really intense experience, and it was, uh, and it was actually obviously my first time, you know, being a, I had no business development experience, nothing, you know, it was, I would do my code, you know, get my features in the game, and that was it. And so this was the first time where I kind of had to really uh, step outside of my comfort zone. Uh, it was good, though. It was, it was going quite well in that, you know, the publishers and the investors and the people who were um, kind of pitching the game to really liked the concept and the idea. But the Kinect market just wasn't there. Like, you know, people who, were, who owned the Kinect weren't buying enough games for it. A lot of that was down to the, the games kind of being a bit shit. And um, so obviously, you know, we tried to argue the point that our game is better, but obviously it's hard to argue with stats. But, um, and this is kind of, you know, where, where I'm going into the sort of failure um, side of things. We thought, we had this crazy idea, you know what, we don't, you know, we're not going to take the word for it. We're going to test our assumptions of the game's marketability by uh, doing a, a Kickstarter. Um, so we thought first, you know, let's build some community. So we uh, uh, changed focus and we started working on this uh, epic trailer. It was a four-minute trailer for the game. It was uh, kind of in, uh, combined uh, live action with footage from the game. Uh, it was, I mean, you know, I don't know how we pulled that stuff off. Uh, but uh, it, it kind of worked. It was pretty good. Uh, the reception was amazing from the games, because that was the first time we were publicly announcing the game, right? Before that, it was all kind of behind uh, kind of closed curtains and stuff. Uh, so the first, you know, the first reception to the game was amazing. Um, 
game sites were saying, you know, this looks like finally a proper Kinect game, you know, a game that could use the Kinect's full sort of capabilities. So we kind of felt vindicated and we felt cool, you know, we've got a momentum now, let's go do a Kickstarter. Uh, and the Kickstarter slowly but surely failed. Uh, and uh, it, was, uh, it was devastating. Uh, it, was, uh, it was really hard. I mean, we did tons of work, tons of work to prepare for the campaign. We had amazing videos. We had an old Kung Fu Grandmaster who used to train with Bruce Lee. I mean, crazy stuff who lives in Australia. Uh, we did a lot of work. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't trending. <laughs> and it was sad times. And, and I guess one thing I want to, <laughs> I think, <laughs> One thing that I want to emphasize here is that it was a particularly tough time for me because it's really hard to kind of disassociate yourself from your, uh, from your project uh, in times like this. So I, I was kind of taking it as a personal failure. So that's, and that's something that I wasn't really expecting to happen. Now, the cool thing is, you know, as I started kind of brushing up my CV and, you know, starting to look for jobs, uh, I uh, started getting emails from people going, hey, you know, you guys look like you know what you're doing. Let's, you know, we want to work with you. And it was investors, universities, all sorts of people. Uh, so we uh, so we kind of took a change of direction, started working with clients. You know, did did a ton of different projects, and we kind of um, got back in track and uh, built the company's portfolio and connections and stuff. Recently, we got some funding from the UK Games Fund. Very grateful for that. Uh, and I also started a new company called Rogueson to work uh, in uh, to focus in VR. Really quickly, obviously, because you know, um, just the learnings. Because uh, I guess this will be the more useful part for you guys. So uh, the path of success is really clear uh, at the beginning. I think Hayden touched on that as well. Um, and it's never a straight line. Uh, this is kind of obvious. Uh, there's no such thing as success in the first place, right? This is another thing that is really important, I think. Um, you know, and, and the same goes for failure, right? I find that you know, if you view both things as a kind of transient, temporary thing, it's, it's a lot healthier than just kind of aiming for something. And it just lets you focus on the important thing, which is doing your best every day. And lastly, uh, resilience is bought but not found. This is kind of a tricky one to explain, but I think it's really important. So everyone talks about resilience and you, know, you need to build, build your resilience. And it's like, okay, how do you do that if you don't have it natively or if you have it at a low supply? And there's, there's lots of ways to do it, I suppose. But one of the ways is to trade empathy points for resilience, right? And this is something weird, and it's something that you don't even appreciate while it's happening. And this is why I want to draw your attention to it. The more you obviously, the more you kind of clench your uh, fists and kind of grind your teeth to sort of weather any storms that um, your career path throws at you, the more resilient you become, obviously. But there's a danger that you kind of might lose connection, you know, to your human side as well. And you might go, you know what, I don't care. Right? I, don't, I don't have a social life anyway, so you know, and I, don't, I don't need friends. But, and <laughs> fine, right? I mean, some people say that. But you know, if you ignore that part, which is, you know, it's obviously going to affect your personal life. But even with your professional life, you know, when you think about as a creator, you know, you, you do, you're going to do work on things with other people, and you're going to build things for other people to enjoy, right? So it's important to retain that connection. And I don't have any advice on how to do that. Uh, if, you, if you figure it out, let me know. <laughs> Please do let me know. But I guess it's important to, to be aware of it. You know, it's a good starting point, I suppose. That's it. Uh, I hope you found it useful. <laughs> Um, now, uh, we have another VT from two of my favourite comedy actors, Diane Morgan and Adil Akhtar. Well, I, I've had hundreds of auditions. 
that didn't go well. But I think I, I can't remember them now because I think you blot, blot them out. They're so humiliating. Uh, but I do remember one uh, for an advert for, um, what was the chicken thing? I feel like chicken tonight. That. And uh, you had to um, sing a reggae song to a frozen chicken. And uh, I can't sing. And the only reggae song I know is, um, there's a rat in my kitchen. What am I going to do? I'm going to kill that rat. So I, that's the only line I know as well. So I had to just keep repeating that to a panel of six people who just sat in silence. Uh, most adverts are, uh, auditions for adverts are humiliating. And I think the best advice is to forget about it the minute you leave the room. Don't dwell on it. Because for years I used to think, oh, I hope I get it. I hope, you know, I really need this job. And I, I, for weeks I'd worry about it. But then after a while I just thought, oh. And the minute you leave the room, you forget about it. Some you'll get, most you won't. But um, don't take it that seriously. That's my advice. So this was a really terrible thing that happened to me when I first left drama school. And I was abroad. Um, in New York, so I was away from home and friends and family. They give you a year's grace if you go to drama school somewhere else. They gave me a year's grace to like go at it and get a job. So when you first leave drama school, you think you just desperately want work and whatever work comes your way, you're gonna get. And the first job I got was an advert for popcorn, which wasn't even an advert, it was one below an advert. So it was gonna just test out as to whether it was gonna be an advert. And I had to sit on the edge of a black cab, it's like a Vox Pop, eat the popcorn and go, in a very Indian accent, go, that is super poppy, corny delicious. And in my mind, I feel like I had a turban, but I'm not sure if I did. I don't know if that's just the visual I got in my brain. And then they go off to somebody else, who's just like another Vox Pop for somebody else. And I get, you got out of drama school, so you give it everything you've got, and blah, blah, blah. And then when it finished, I went, oh, that was, that wasn't a nice, that wasn't nice. That was a nice experience. So that's the worst thing that happened to me. And I'm over it now. I definitely won't do a, a, pop, a popcorn commercial anytime soon. <laughs> I don't, they are brilliant, both of them. Now, our fourth storyteller is a journalist and presenter who is currently presenting The One Show on BBC One. His previous credits include Crime Watch and Watchdog, and she started in children's production on CBBC. Please welcome Michelle Ackley to the stage. Thank you. So, yeah. As uh, Rhiannon said, I'm a, a presenter. Worked in TV for about 11 years now. Started out in production and then moved into presenting about five or six years ago. And one thing that I didn't realise when I first started was uh, presenting was just how many meetings you have to go to and you're on show. And it's basically like, pick me, pick me. I'm amazing. You know, you have to big yourself up and talk about yourself like you are the best thing since sliced bread which if you're feeling in a confident mood is all right and you, you know you cite yourself up for it and you really go for it and then other times you just basically have to act because you need to kind of go in there with you know 100% confidence um, but one of my worst meetings was I went um, I live up north so I, I came down to London on the train and I was having a meeting um, with an exec producer 
Um, I'd done all my background research, so I'd, I'd Google image the woman, so I knew who to recognise when I got to reception, <laughs> point number one. And um, I did background research on, on the, the types of programmes that this independent production company made and went with loads of different ideas. And I, I was feeling pretty good, to be honest. I was like, yeah, I'm going I'm to nail this. I'm having a good day, you know, this is going to be great. Got to reception and... Um, First of all, the woman had forgotten that I was coming, which wasn't the best start. Got in, you know, and she, she sat me down. And the, the, the first thing was she didn't make any eye contact with me because clearly she needed to be somewhere else. Um, so I kind of started going through things saying, well, I thought about this idea and I know you do this. And, I know you, and she was like, yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, cool, okay. And literally wasn't interested in anything that I had to say. Um, clearly needed to be somewhere else. And, and every time that I, I pitched a new idea to her, her stock response was, yeah, well, that won't work because of this, and that won't work because of this, and that. And it was just a very, very kind of negative, negative experience. Um, and I came away from that feeling pretty shit. And I remember being on the train um, back home and calling my mum saying, I don't, I don't actually want to do this anymore. Do you know what I mean? This isn't, this isn't a nice experience for me. I've come down feeling really positive and all my energy has just been sapped. You know, and, and obviously months went by and I went to many other meetings. Some went well, some didn't go well. But one thing that I've realised upon reflection is, as you know, one of the comedians just said there, when you come out of a meeting interview situation, whatever it may be, you need to leave it at the door. And as long as you go in with, you know, your, your preparation done, it could go well, it might not go well, but you've just got to park it there. And, and sometimes you can't actually control other people's behaviours towards you, because they might just be having a shitty day for, you know, no reason that you actually know about. So you've just got to be able to go in and come out feeling like, regardless of what happens, if I get this job or, or I don't get this job, have I given it my all? Have I given it 100%? Am I proud of myself in that situation? And if you can come away feeling like that, then, then it doesn't actually matter because there are going to be certain things that stick eventually and there are going to be ones that, that don't. And, and I am a massive believer in everything happens for a reason and if you put the effort in, you know, you will get a, a return from it. But, but all I'd say is don't let, you know, negative situations like that stop you. You just got to keep on pushing and keep focused because it, it will eventually pay off. Really wonderful advice from Michelle there. That really resonates with me, and I'm sure most of you in the room have been through that as well. Now, next up, we have Michaela Cole talking about her worst. There was a part in a story and I did five auditions, five rounds of auditions, and then had to actually um, like learn scenes in a different language. And so I was doing scenes in a language that I didn't know. And then was like doing the screen test where they were looking for my child. And then I was told um, I didn't get the part because I wasn't mousy looking enough. And I cried, I literally cried on the street. That's how dramatic I took this situation. I cried outside my house. I might as well have just sat on the floor, done the slow kind of sink, crying, but I didn't do that. I just cried on, on outside my house. And you know what? Honestly, I think that there isn't a way to not be affected. If you're, because when you audition, for me, in order to like try and have a successful audition, um, you have to invest a lot of yourself into it. So there is, you can't avoid the cost of losing it. 
and the more rounds you do, the higher the cost becomes. So I think, to me, you're always going to end up crying and you have to just be prepared to minimise the amount of days that you cry for. It's the same with you do a role and actually you think it's going to be great and then by the time it comes on screen, actually you thought it was great, but it's shit and everybody thinks this is really bad. And so you thought it was gonna be good and it's not. And you're gonna cry, but I think you just have to minimize the amount of time. Make it a couple of days, cry for a couple of days and then get over it. You can end up prolonging it and then it actually bleeds into your personality and into the way you live your life. You're this like, oh, actor, just let it be a couple of days and then throw it away. Here's something I learned in drama school and I always use it, it's hold on tightly, let go lightly. So give it your all, and if it doesn't come your way, you have to just, okay, let it go. Off you go. Just, just, I think she said a couple of days, right? She said that, didn't she? A couple of days. Um, now, our fifth and final storyteller is a director whose credits include Fresh Meat, the, the latest series of Cold Feet, uh, Nidia Abroad, and his feature doc, Sounds Like Teen Spirit. And he was BAFTA nominated in 2004 for Best Factual Director. Please welcome Jamie J. Johnson. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Thanks, BAFTA, for having me. I'm talking about my worst getting a commission. Uh, this happened not long after I went to art school, where I, for my graduation, I was doing projects like doing portraits of, trying to sell people portraits of their cars, uh, dressing up as an eight-foot papier-mâché pigeon in Trafalgar Square, and setting my pants on fire outside Calvin Klein. That was called Consumer Revolution in My Pants. It was one of my graduation projects. Anyhow, so I left art school basically thinking anything was possible and the world was my oyster and then spent like several, what felt like years, just banging my head against the wall trying to get what I wanted to make uh, made. And then I met a producer at a party who was a documentary producer and I said, oh, I've got a couple of documentary ideas. And I pitched myself and my friend at the time going from London to Stockholm uh, on horseback, dressed as medieval courtiers to try and <laughs> woo and marry the Swedish princesses. And then I also, after that, trying to get other things commissioned, I made something called I Love Serial, a TV fanzine. And both of these documentaries were, um, the first one was on at five in the morning, this one was on at 2.35, and the budget was a thousand pounds, that was for everything, all fees, all music, all clearances, the whole production. <laughs> So basically after that I was like, okay, my next goal was this thing called Alt TV, which was a strand that was 7.30 on a Friday evening on Channel 4. And there was a commissioner called Jess Search who was an amazing commissioner, but quite an intimidating person. And, but I was just like, okay, I'm going to start pitching ideas. So typically every sort of week I would go to the public library and I would type up my ideas and I'd probably send about 10. They were usually like one-liners and then I'd maybe do like an 8A, 8B, so like these are the options. Here, this is a sort of two months, maybe 65 ideas pitched. Here's some of the highlights. An authored survey of snacks from my local garage. <laughs> Search for the real beavers and butthead. Something about Snowflake the albino gorilla. Something about people's office mascots. Something about people's wallet photos. That was going to be an animation. Uh, a single take doc, a scratch and sniff doc. Search for a god lookalike. Brief history of vandalism. And then the last one was just I can't even remember what it was, but it was called a potato odyssey. Anyhow, 
So I pitched all of these ideas, and then I didn't, I wasn't even getting responses, you know. <laughs> I wasn't even getting any emails back, but I managed to get a ticket for an event at Channel 4 where Just Search, the commissioner, was talking about what the documentary department was looking for. So I went along, and the things that I wrote in my sketchbook from her briefing was, don't send more than two ideas at a time. Don't send more ideas until you've received a response. <laughs> Expect to wait around four weeks for a response and don't chase beforehand. Don't send ideas you haven't secured access for. Only send ideas you've researched in depth and don't send single line ideas. <laughs> so as this was going on, I was basically just sinking lower and lower into my seat and just realizing that I'd broken every cardinal rule in pitching. And to sort of top it all off, I was sitting next to her assistant, who I was trying to make a good impression of, who just turned to me halfway through and just hissed, will you stop fidgeting? <laughs> so I basically just gave up there and then and decided to change career. And uh, I just started selling single and pairs of odd socks, <laughs> which didn't go very well. I lost money on every pair, and I broke the butcher's uh, shrink wrapping machine in the basement where I was packaging them. But I did send a pair to Jess Search as a present. She sent them to her girlfriend at the time. And then about a month later, I got a phone call saying, if I gave you 10 grand to make a late night documentary, what would you like to do? So I went in and saw her and I showed her. That's not even, that's what got me the commission. <laughs> that's, not, that's not supposed to be funny. This was the spider diagram of this holiday around my bedroom that I was pitching to her. And it was all the sort of things. And yeah, it, maybe it made me look like a serial killer. But <laughs> she then, two days later, phoned me up and she said, what about if I gave you 40 grand and you did this as an alt TV? And we made it. Uh, she was amazing to work with. Uh, and we shot, I shot it completely in my room, edited in my room. Uh, and unbelievably, it was nominated for a BAFTA and broadcast Best Director Factual, Best New Director. I was trying to work out a moral of the story, but it was something like, if at first you don't succeed, maybe give up for a little bit, do something sock-based, and then go back to it. Um, so that is the last. Thank you so much to all our speakers. They were brilliant. Thank you. We got time for a quick Q&A? OK, we have time for a five-minute Q&A. So I hope you're less shy about asking questions to our lovely panel. Please come up and join me on the sofa. OK, we have a question from the lady in red. Hello. Um, thank you. That was really interesting and really hilarious as well. Um, I just wanted to ask, so um, obviously you're all very successful in all your fields at the moment, but how do you feel about the idea of documenting your failures? First of all, I just want to say, I don't think any of us feel successful. Yeah. I would agree. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. But that was just life, wasn't it? That <laughs> was just like, hey, what are we doing right now? Yeah, no, it comes back to what I was saying in the talk about not seeing success or failure as a, as a state. It's just a temporary thing, right? Mm. So... But what you were saying about your pitching stuff, like I've definitely felt that when you don't get a reply from a commissioner or you go and pitch something to a commissioner and you take it so personally. Yeah. And you could almost convince yourself to just stop your career right there and just, yeah, yeah. just bow out gracefully because yeah. it's just so personal and it's such an insult to you. And then you realise that just, no one cares. Like, <laughs> yeah. They've just got other stuff going on and they haven't read your email or just that idea was crap and there's another idea that's not so crap. 
I think for me it was a real eye-opener going into a commissioner's office and just seeing the amount of stuff that they had to get through, like seeing on yeah. their shelves like the amount of things they had to watch, had to read, and you're just like, mm. they're really, really busy people and it's not that much of a shock that they don't, mm. they don't get back to you the day after you've sent your pitch. Yeah, even if you've spent two weeks writing yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. meticulously yeah yeah agonizing, agonizing. I, don't, I don't think anyone really dwell i think you don't anything that you do is always you're always thinking okay how can i how can i now really do something that's mm. actually really like actually you know the real kind of the really good stuff <laughs> yeah. you know yeah. and i think that that's you know i mean that was all fine yeah Ooh, well done well done <laughs> but what can i do next and i think it's that's just i think a, a, a mindset yeah. so I, I think you always kind of sneakily feel like you know there's something else that will then feel like, not even feel like success. I think I, I just, I've given up on that feeling, that that's an unattainable feeling, really. It's a pointless feeling. Who yeah. feels successful? Donald Trump? I mean, what? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, nobody, I think... I think he of, does. All, yeah, I think All the time. He's got and there's a clue in that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, don't, don't be him, basically. Don't yeah. be him, you know. Maybe Donald yeah. Trump, that's a good lesson. It always feels like a work in progress, really, doesn't yeah. it? But then there's that thing of, of trying to enjoy the moment as well, because otherwise you'll just wake up one day and think, what was the point in any of that, actually? Do you know what I mean? Mm. So it is embracing those times where you feel like you're failing and, and trying to embrace those times when actually trying to recognise, yeah, that was a success, or, you know, this is, you know, I am being successful, however you would, you know, choose to define it, really. Do we have another question? Thank you all for sharing your stories. I think it's really, uh, really great, because... Any creative person, I think, will have times when they feel like they want to give up and run away, and I've certainly had that at times. And so it's really great. Um, the one question I think the one thing that maybe is is the hardest is comparing yourself to other people. Uh, Would you agree? And have you got any insights on that? Don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> don't do it. How do you start? How do you not do it? Yeah, it's it's that's that's very true. I mean, especially with presenting, you know, it's there's so many really good presenters out there and, and one thing that I, I don't do is is really watch and analyse other people and directly compare it to me. I watch other yeah. people think, oh they're fantastic, but I, I really don't think, you know, I need to try and be more like this or less like this in, in direct comparison because it would actually mm. send me crazy. Do you yeah. know what I mean? It's yeah. just it can get quite an unhealthy an unhealthy thing but your voice is totally unique. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And if, if you're focusing on what other people are doing, you're not discovering what your, who, what your voice is. But I, I think it's possible to like compare yourself. People often compare themselves to people that they uh, see as more successful, but then they confuse the attributes of that person with the thing that they're, do you know what I mean? Like you are a completely different person. That person is successful for these reasons. But if you start trying to emulate that person, you're lo no longer doing something that's different. Mm. You're just a probably less successful version of that person. Do you know what I mean? I think that, um, yeah, it's just, it's not. You're not being yourself, are you? Also, it's a problem that's sort of compounded by social social media, obviously, because it's so so easy these days to kind of feel, feel inferior to pretty much everyone because everyone's kind of out there projecting, you know, the best version of, the, of themselves as well, right? So, but in relation like Jessica was saying, just don't do it. <laughs> what you said was really interesting when you talked about resilience, because you're right that just being really resilient and just like taking, you know, defeat after defeat isn't really the name of the game. In, 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 yeah. but it, is it something different? Don't they, in tech, com tech <laughs> companies talk about this thing called pivoting right now, don't they? So Airbnb, when Airbnb started, it wasn't Airbnb, it was something completely different. And a lot of tech companies now launch as one thing and completely change because they're working out where their market is. And I think that's really important. It's about being 
flexible. Didn't Bruce Lee say something like that about being flexible? Uh, that's resilience, isn't it? It's being, it's, being, it's being able to kind of see new markets or new opportunities and work out what it is that you are trying to be and how that is different from that person that you're comparing yourself to. Great question. Thank you. I teach um, film studies to young people, sort of 11 to 14-year-old, and they don't really have confidence that they can actually make it in the media industry uh, for many reasons that we're all quite aware of. Um, but I'm really interested in the moment when what you wanted to achieve as individuals, as artists, as, as, um, as communicators, actually made sense to somebody else and you got that moment where you got your break. It's quite interesting, that moment when what you wanted made sense to the outside world. Actually, I do have a specific thing and it was with an educator. It was with an educator, it was a teacher that I, when I was a child who like completely put herself out to say, to single me out in a way that I think is much harder these days. There's, it feels like everyone, ha it all has to be a level playing field and you can't say to someone, you're really good, you're better at that than her or whatever because it's everyone's supposed to kind of, supposed to be sort of shared somehow. But I, I had an educator, why are we calling them educators? Teachers, an educator. <laughs> I had an educator, <laughs> a teacher uh, who said to me, you know, uh, she just was unapologetic about it and it never even occurred to me but she said, you should be an actress. You know, I said, why? <laughs> um, no, <laughs> what do you mean? But she said, she said, she actually went out of her way to drill that into me. And I ha would not have thought of it. I wouldn't have, I don't know where that confidence. And she, she, she it, that changed my life. And I, I, I had lunch with her the other day. <laughs> and, um, you know, she's lovely. She's going on a lot of jazz cruises. Um, <laughs> she's a wonderful woman. And I love telling her that, that she, she, she totally said that I've been teaching for 20 years. She said, and there's been four children who I thought could be an actor. She said, and you're one of them. And that changed my life. That carried me through everything. And, and so it is possible to be that person, particularly in your position, to say, do you know what? I see what you're doing and I see your intelligence and you can do it. And it like just that makes it changes everything. And that's how I think it definitely changed, changed my life. Definitely. Thank you so much. Oh, that is all we have time for. So another round of applause for our wonderful panel. Amazing speakers. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Guru. You can find more amazing insights into film, TV and games at guru.bafta.org or by subscribing to this podcast. Do it now for free on your podcast app of choice. Just search for BAFTA Guru. I'm Rihanna Dillon. The producer is Matt Hill at Rethink Audio. I'll see you next time. The Guru. 